Historically, the Chinese government make these really big moves and they make an example of one or two companies and then they move on. And maybe in a couple of years, they'll come back and they'll make examples again. When we're looking at some of these unfair practices, on the one hand, we do have some very visible and very public moves against the technology industry. But I think that over time, it'll be interesting to see how compliant some of these platforms are. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business technology and media in Asia. With me today, I have John Edmund, an old friend, technology editor from the South China Morning Post, SCMP. Hi, John. How are you doing? Yeah, thanks. Thanks again for having me, Bernard. Yes, I remember you have a conversation with Carol recently. Since that conversation, what have you been up to? As you might expect, uh, just following the news. It's been a bumpy ride this year in the technology industry, as I'm sure you're very much aware. On the one hand, coming into this year, there already were some moves against some of the bigger tech companies. But in the background, is still the coronavirus and the impact coming from that. But then just maturation of the overall market, especially in the technology industry, we're really seeing the companies themselves are maturing, but also the markets are maturing. What that means is these companies that have been used to the supercharged growth are getting squeezed uh, a little bit by the government, but they're also getting squeezed in the market itself. Which actually comes to the main subject of the day, right? We are talking about the China Internet Report 2021 uh, by the South China Morning Post. This is now I would see as an annual ritual. It's, yes. At least to me, it's similar to Mary Meeker's State of the Internet. I don't know whether she still produces any of those since she left Kleiner Perkins Coffee Buyers. I wanted to start off with a few key takeaways and some key numbers for the report itself. Yeah, the key numbers comparing China to US internet. The year-on-year growth for China from 2020 to 2021 on the following three segments. One, internet users' growth is plus 85 million users in China versus plus 12 million users in the US. Two, mobile internet growth is plus 89 million users in China versus plus 5 million users in the US. And three, mobile payments growth is plus 87 million users in China versus plus 23 million users in the US. For the initial public offerings or IPOs market, the Chinese internet companies raised a total of US 46 billion on public markets, including both primary and secondary listings since January 2020. Hong Kong was the preferred location for Chinese tech IPOs, followed by the US. The largest IPO was from Kuaishou, which raised US 6.2 billion in February 2021. The largest US tech IPO during the same period would have ranked fifth when pitted against its Chinese peers. The report identified five key cross-sector trends in 2021. One, tightening regulations from the Chinese internet on multiple fronts. Two, the bumpy road ahead for Chinese tech IPOs. Three, changing overseas expansion plans amid geopolitical tensions, which focus on the Southeast Asia region, shifting demographics highlighting underserved internet user segments, and five, growing focus on private domain traffic. John, given these interesting numbers and key takeaways from the report, I want to start off with the first question, and I think this is on everyone's mind, whether they are China watchers or whether they are watching from outside of China. With the tightening regulation from the Chinese government on the Chinese tech companies, Is 2021 the year where we shift into a new era for the industry? If so, what should we be expecting moving forward? 
Yeah, this is definitely a new era for, for the technology industry, but in all honesty, for the entire country as well. As you probably know, the technology industry has been a real driver of economic development and growth for quite some time. I think that a lot of what we're seeing is the confirmation of the importance of the technology industry for the entire country, as well as the influence that it has on a variety of things from everyday life all the way up to GDP figures and, and things like that. Um, as I mentioned before, we're looking at the, the combination of these two macro trends. On the one hand, the room for growth for these technology companies is shrinking uh, on a daily basis. When Alibaba and Tencent, when they first got started, it was just blue ocean pretty much everywhere. The sky was almost literally the limit at that point. Fast forward to now, we can see that while some of these bigger companies, they do have their ecosystems and their territory demarcated, the room between the territory is shrinking. What we're seeing in a few different ways is these companies, both large and small, figuring out where they can reap that marginal growth. What markets or sectors or new types of consumers can they tap into to actually get that growth? Then on the other hand, of course, is the regulation. We've seen some pretty aggressive or maybe assertive regulations and enforcement actions coming from the Chinese government in a variety of forms. But at the end of the day, you can distill it down to the Chinese government. The Chinese government are in a position where they can confidently take action and constrain the bad behavior of the technology industry, as well as really define and act confidently when it comes to protecting data and creating a data regime. I think the government is hoping to create some public data mechanism where data can be easily shared and moved throughout the economy. As China is tightening regulations on multiple fronts, it's best to start with the antitrust argument where you see Chinese regulators are taking aim at big tech's bad behavior. What are the key drivers that prompted the Chinese government to move at such rapid pace? They started off last year, November 2020, and ever since, every month, there's always some news going on within the Chinese tech ecosystem. Yeah, what it comes down to is antitrust, anti-monopoly. It comes down to market power and the influence that these very large platforms and companies have on the market. So I'll just stop here for a second and make a quick disclaimer. Alibaba is the parent and full owner of the South China Morning Post. However, they have no hand in our newsroom operations. On the flip side of that, of course, is that I do not speak for either. But that being said, you look at the first moves against the technology industry were really targeted at Alibaba. At first, in the form of Ant Group, which is their fintech subsidiary or fintech affiliate. And of course, against uh, the mother company as well. What we see in both cases is that the government is saying, hey, wait a second, we really have to start constraining their behavior, giving them a little bit less room to engage in what some might consider unethical business practices. At the end of the day, if we look at what's happened with Alibaba, with Tencent, with Meituan, with DD, and even to a certain degree with ByteDance, the bureaucracy as a whole becoming much more confident about their ability to, on the one hand, understand what some of the issues are in the technology industry and how that affects the overall economy and society. But then on the other hand, also having a legislation in place where 
where they can actually begin to constrain some of that behavior. At the end of the day, what it comes down to is these companies, they've grown so fast, they, they are so big now that if the government will allow them to continue basically unfettered, there could be some very serious negative impacts, I think is really what it comes down to. If we look at the antitrust, anti-monopoly moves against Alibaba and Meituan, it's not so much about price control or price gouging or anything like that of consumers. It's much more about protecting the merchants or the sellers on these platforms, or in some cases, even the delivery drivers in the case of Meituan and the gig economy. It's interesting how the Chinese government, when we're looking at how they view monopoly and how they view the impact of market concentration, it's very different than what we see in the US. And it's also a little bit different than what we see uh, in the EU as well. For my audience out there uh, who are not in China, can you dive deeper into the unfair practices made by the Chinese tech giants in the day-to-day activity. There was a time if you are a new app, you have to be either with Alibaba or Tencent. But you can't interoperate within both tech giants. To be honest, it's still the case. What we saw with the antitrust enforcement against Alibaba, the main issue that the government highlighted was forced exclusivity. In Chinese, they say so to choose one from two. The idea being that if you are a merchant, if you are a brand that wants to sell on one of Alibaba's platforms, you have to enter some exclusive arrangement or at least some preferential arrangement where you will put in more resources, more effort into whatever it's going on the Alibaba platforms than you would on a different competitor. In some cases, there was some evidence showing Knowing that if a company or a brand did not agree to this, or at least did not behave in the way that was expected, that some of their search results would not be ranked the same. Some of the ways to signal promotions would not actually apply to the brand or company, even though they were technically part of that same promotion. That's really what the force exclusivity came down to. So in the case of Meituan, forcing restaurants or other types of offline businesses to choose, either you're on Meituan or you're on one of the competitors. If you try to do both, it's not going to be an optimal uh, result for you. Then what we've seen more broadly speaking are the walled gardens, as you mentioned, Alibaba, Tencent, and ByteDance as well. They make it difficult for users to interact with other ecosystems via their platforms. One of the most egregious and, and obvious examples is the example of WeChat. It's not possible at this moment. If I share a link, Taobao uh, link to a product with you, Bernard, on WeChat, it's just not going to work. Instead, Alibaba has actually come up with a workaround where people can actually share links through WeChat, but natively, it doesn't work. Uh, It's actually quite frustrating in most cases. And we see the same thing. Alibaba does this to Tencent. Tencent does this to ByteDance, does this to Tencent. So everyone's doing it, right? So it's not just one company that's doing this. In the case of walled gardens, I don't think this is necessarily something very unique or different between China and the rest of the world. It's just that companies in China are much more aggressive about it. They're less concerned about the the optics of it. Whereas I think with Facebook, Google, Apple, and Amazon, we know that they're not friends. They are competitors in many different ways, but at the same time, they don't like outright block each other from certain things. However, at the same time, they don't make it necessarily very easy either. Then in the case of price discrimination, this is something very much tied to data collection and artificial intelligence. In some cases, whether it's a travel platform or a ride hailing platform, over time, the more you use the dial in to your price sensitivity, 
and to your willingness to pay. If you have uh, lower price sensitivity, they will over time increase the prices for you. Again, I think that in most cases, they're not necessarily unique to China, but at the same time, in China, we see the extreme examples. What actions has the Chinese government taken to stop these unfair practices? So with the walled gardens, not much at the moment. And they've signaled that these companies do need to start taking down some of the walls, where the walls or how high the walls, let's say, to really continue to stretch this metaphor, how high the walls can be, I think is something that's under discussion and being negotiated, I imagine, between the regulators and the companies themselves. When it comes to the forced exclusivity, I think the government has made it very clear through the record fine that they gave Alibaba that forced exclusivity is not going to be tolerated. After the record fine against Alibaba, after we get the conclusion from the investigation into Meituan, what follow-up action is there going to be? Also, what's the compliance mechanism that the government is going to have? Have. Historically, the Chinese government make these really big moves and they make an example of one or two companies and then they move on. And maybe in a couple of years, they'll come back and they'll make examples again. When we're looking at some of these unfair practices, on the one hand, we do have some very visible and very public moves against the tech technology industry. But I think that over time, it'll be interesting to see how compliant some of these platforms are. The Chinese government has made significant movements to reform fintech and possibly crush the cryptocurrency landscape. I want to examine the regulatory angle. Can you talk about one or two policy objectives and discuss implications to the landscape and impact on the fintech companies? What the big issue for fintech really was systemic risk. If we look at some of the time around the move, the, the big moves against Ant Group, I think there's a lot of arguments one way or the other. Was it because of the speech that Jack Ma gave or was it something else that was already planned? Personally, I imagine it was actually somewhere in the middle. If you look at the public statements and the documentation that came after the halt of the Ant Group IPO, it's pretty clear that this was not something just that came out of nowhere. It was pretty comprehensive. What it comes down to is systemic risk. Companies like like Ant Group, WeBank, which is owned by Tencent, or any lending companies, micro loan companies that have popped up over the last five or 10 years. The issue there is that they didn't have enough skin in the game. These companies would generate loans. They would say, okay, so this person, based on our assessment, which we claim to be based on a wide range of behavioral data that we've collected on our platforms, we have created a credit profile and a risk profile for them. But you're a bank, you want to give out more loans, we'll recommend you this person or this group of people for loans. You use your own mechanisms to decide what the interest rates are and things like that. You will actually loan the money out. The big concern here is that these fintech companies were not keeping a high enough percentage of these loans on their own books. If there was any cascading defaults as we saw in the housing crisis 2007-2008, that these companies they wouldn't be affected that much. Obviously, they would be, but not to the same degree as the banks would. I think that's really what it all came down to in terms of fintech. So one interesting piece I have extracted reading the report, and I've not seen it done anywhere else, is how China has accelerated the timeline with the legislation progress and an illustrated timeline to, to how the US, European Union, and China have evolved their legislation on data protection. My first question is, can you dive deep into China's three pillars relating to data protection, critical information infrastructure, or what we call CSL, personal process outside of cyberspace, which is PIPL, and 
DSL, which means any other record of information in electronic or other forms. It's interesting because I think that from the outside, it really looks like China moving faster than the US and the EU. I think to a certain degree that is true, but partly because the US and the EU have been looking at these issues. We have the CSL, the cybersecurity law that was passed in 2017. We have the PIPL, the personal information protection law that was passed last year and is coming into effect soon. We have the data security law, which was passed last year as well, came into effect recently. All three laws, they're looking data, data collection, data usage, as you mentioned, in different ways cybersecurity, the CSL really, that's a large part of it. How do we protect our critical infrastructure? How do we make sure that public companies or SOEs, state-owned enterprises, or any other public institution, but also private companies, how do we make sure that they are being responsible in protecting the data that they're actually collecting? Uh, The PIPL, the personal information protection law, that's very much more about consumers, the users that are actually generating the data that these companies and platforms are collecting. And then the data security law, that's much more related to what we've been seeing with some of the actions against uh, Didi Chuxing. So we understand that data is super important for businesses, but it's also super important for the government. This term data national security has really gained a lot of traction within the Chinese government and Chinese media recently. We are both not lawyers. In terms of legislation on data protection, I would say the European Union and China are probably more advanced than the US. What is the difference between the Chinese laws and GDPR? The biggest difference is, unsurprisingly, an ideological one, or maybe a cultural one is a better way to put it. GDPR is very focused on the rights of the individual and their ability to define how private they want their activity online to be, as well as their right to tell platforms they have to delete the data that they generate. The Chinese legislation is much more the safety of the country. The stability of the entire country really is underpinning a lot of that. At the end of the day, that's really the biggest difference. In general, when we're looking at uh, Chinese legislation and the overall approach to governance, it really is about what's the best for everyone. It really leans more towards making sure that the government's interests are protected, and it gives uh, the government and the Communist Party a way to manage a society and keep things relatively stable. The GDPR is just much more about focusing on the individual and making sure that their rights are protected. In China, the idea of individual rights is very new. Technically, it is included in the constitution of the country, but in practice, it's not really something that's enforced. Even then, the overall idea of rights is something that I think the entire country is still getting used to. I don't want to turn this discussion into everything about regulation, but my last question on this topic would be, what is the Chinese government's perspective on cryptocurrency, given that they have legislated against Bitcoin mining and recently declared all cryptocurrencies to be illegal. This is in preparation with the emergence of the digital yuan that is supposed to be rolled out very soon. It is interesting how long the Chinese government has tolerated cryptocurrencies. I say that a little bit of history just for a second. Bitcoin has been around for a long time. I started covering Bitcoin when it was like $4 or something like that. I'm still wondering if I should have bought in back then. I don't own any cryptocurrency. Bitcoin has been around for a long time, but it wasn't really until initial coin offerings that the Chinese government stepped in and said, you know what, this is taking it a little bit too far. So on the one hand, again, there is some systemic risk involved. I think that Bernard and your listeners are probably very aware of all the nonsense that happens in the blockchain space, in particular with the ICOs. 
the amount of money that some of these companies were able to raise with uh, some in good faith, but still with no product and no business model, others in bad faith. And it was literally just uh, clearly a scam we can see in, in retrospect. The government, I think, awesome of this happening was like, you know what? Stop. No more ICOs, no more retail trading of cryptocurrencies. And a lot of that, again, was on the one hand, systemic risk. So preventing a large swath of people from just losing their shirts overnight. But then on the other hand, it's very much about capital control, making sure that comes into China, but it's not very easy for it to leave China. It's been really interesting to see how long that was in 2017. It's taken them about four years to finally close the gates entirely. When it comes to cryptocurrency, their stance hasn't necessarily changed all that much. They're very clearly showing that, that it's just not going to be tolerated whatsoever. Bitcoin mining has been huge in China for years now, and the majority of the hash rate processing power of the Bitcoin network has been in China for years. There were some concerns, in fact, that maybe the Chinese government would try to leverage the existing hash rate in China to do an attack against the Bitcoin network. We haven't seen that. And in fact, you know, at this point, most Bitcoin enthusiasts can actually breathe a little bit easier because that's no longer a threat. In relation to the digital yuan, I don't think that the government necessarily sees Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies as a competitor to the digital RMB. Cryptocurrency to the financial system because the government does not have direct control over it. It's also a threat to their ability to control money leaving the country, ill-gotten gains, corrupt officials, and things like that. With cryptocurrency, it's too easy uh, for them to get that money outside. Whereas the digital RMB is much more, I think, about, on the one hand, financial uh, inclusivity, making it easier for people to transact online if they don't have a bank account or if they don't have access necessarily or spotty access to the to the internet on the other hand it's a way for them to get monetary control capital control into the digital ecosystem so in a certain sense cryptocurrencies and, the, and digital money it operates in the same space given the tightly regulated domestic market in china the chinese tech companies have no choice but to spend their efforts on geographic expansion the most interesting part of the report at least to me is southeast asia where i live seems to be the premier destination where they are heading there is an implicit view from a lot of investors who I talk to how they invest typically in the following geographic order, China, followed by India, and then Southeast Asia. What has changed to make Southeast Asia more appealing to investors? On the one hand, especially for Chinese companies and investors, India is becoming much harder. We can see that ByteDance is still not allowed in the country. Many of their products have been banned. If you look at the top 20 apps two years ago, more than half were Chinese-owned or maybe even the companies behind them were still headquartered in China. So we've seen a big change in the accessibility of the Indian market. And we're looking at China, as I mentioned before, the entire technology industry has matured. The market here is extremely competitive. Finding that marginal profit is becoming harder and harder. Southeast Asia has always been one of the top places for Chinese venture capital, entrepreneurs, and technology companies. What we're seeing over the last maybe year or so is, again, some of these factors that I just mentioned combined has brought more focus into Southeast Asia. And of course, I think we can very easily say that Southeast Asia has really come into its own. For being in China, Southeast Asia has been an area of focus for me, but it's something that I follow, I track, beginning from maybe four or five years ago. And four or five years ago, it was the, the narrative was Southeast Asia is becoming a, a place where more people are becoming interested in. And I think now, given some of the public listings, some of the big fundraisings that we've seen throughout the region, Southeast Asia has really become the place in a lot of ways, uh, I think, for a lot of different investors and uh, entrepreneurs. 
What have the China tech giants been doing in Southeast Asia for the past year? Yeah, I think it's a bit misleading in a certain sense because when we say Southeast Asia, we mean a lot of different countries, right? So we're talking about Singapore, Thailand, Vietnam, Malaysia, Indonesia, the Philippines. It's not a single market. The nomenclature used here is a bit misleading. Every company has to have a slightly different strategy in each country. What we've been seeing actually is happening in Singapore, where these companies are going into Singapore and establishing a base there. Singapore is a place on the one hand the economy and the regulations are very mature and it's a great place for raising capital. What we're seeing is a lot of tech giants are interested in the financial side of things that are happening in Singapore. Then also we're looking at different areas as well. So data centers in Indonesia as well as uh, the Philippines. Uh, some companies are also bringing their products in. So Tencent with their content entertainment products, Alibaba with their e-commerce and then similar with ByteDance localizing some of the products and services that have succeeded well at home. In fact, Chu Soju, who is the former CFO of Xiaomi, is now the global CEO for TikTok under ByteDance, and he's based in Singapore as well. So this mm-hmm. is going to be something interesting to watch. I think other than talking about the tech giants, I'm curious about the Chinese startups. How are the Chinese startups, for example, Xin, adapting in their geographic expansion? What are they doing differently? Xinyan is a really interesting case study because I think as typical, people became aware of them overnight. It was suddenly there was no Xi'an and now there's Xi'an. But the fact is the company has been been around for four or five years already operating relatively behind the scenes. It's only in the last year or so that they've really begun to gain a lot. When we're looking at a lot of these companies, because Xi'an's not the only ones, there's many of them. On the one hand, they are leveraging the logistics infrastructure investment that's been going on for the last decade. They are leveraging the increasingly capable and flexible manufacturing industry here in China as well. But then what they're also doing is they are downplaying or not even, it's not even clear at all that they are in fact Chinese. If you ask someone, TikTok, is that American or where is that from? Most people will say China at this point because they've been in the news. Before all the kerfuffle with Donald Trump, if you ask people where TikTok is from, who made it, they might not have said China. The same thing I think is happening with a lot of these other startups. It doesn't matter that they're from China or from Russia or from Germany or whatever. These are global companies, global first companies, and their customers are are global customers, mostly in affluent Western countries. I think that this has really been the key for Chinese companies. We're just now seeing that problem being solved. One of the big issues for Chinese companies expanding overseas is that when they were growing, they grew in the domestic market. They're optimized for the domestic market, for Chinese consumers and for Chinese preferences, whether it's the product itself, whether it's the pricing, or whether it's just the overall user experience in terms of ordering and, and interacting with the items and, and things like that. What happened was they were in some ways over-optimized before the domestic market. When they tried to bring that success outside of China, they really didn't understand how to address non-Chinese consumers. With companies like Shein, DJI is is another great example. They started off global first. They knew that the domestic market, there's not a lot of opportunity there. Maybe 
on the one hand, the competition is too tough for what they're trying to sell, or maybe there just wasn't for their product in the first place. They started off with a global affluent consumer in mind and through their branding experience, through the products they offer. Again, it doesn't matter where they come from. This has really been the key for Chinese companies. And we're seeing them now crack that problem. That's going to be interesting because the next generation of Chinese tech companies are going to be very global companies rather than being very China first, as you see in the tech giants who have started there first. One interesting aspect of the report that this is poorly covered by the Western media is the growing focus on private domain traffic. It's also a concept that you have to give me some idea before I could even think about what it really was. Can you introduce what private domain traffic is and what are the key platforms that are driving this approach? Basically, in a nutshell, private domain traffic, we can juxtapose it to it's a public domain. Public domain on the one hand is very much about the open web, interoperability, interchangeability, and the ability for data to move around. Whereas private domain traffic is very much a response to the increasingly closed internet in China in particular and increasingly everywhere else. The browser is not the main entry point into the internet or even mobile services in general. It's apps, whether it's Google, Facebook, TikTok, Alibaba, Tencent, or what have you. When people open their phones and they want to connect, they open an app, not a web browser these days. So that's part of it. But then the other part is these startup companies and these brands, they were encountering this problem where the platform that they were selling on had complete control over access to the user. So these platforms are able to gatekeep, they're able to dictate terms, and whether it's profit sharing, whether it's take rate, some very ingenious startups were like, wait a second, let's figure this out because we're losing money here. We're leaving money on the table if we let Taobao or Jingdong or Pinduoduo to control access to the user. What they've done is they've created this process where they still sell on these major platforms. But what happens is when you receive the item that you ordered, it comes with a piece of paper that says, hey, scan this QR code and get a free gift or a coupon or something like that. You scan the QR code where you get connected with one of their sales representatives or community managers or, or what have you. And that community manager is like, hey, okay, so here's your free coupon or whatever. Here's your discount. If you want more deals, you just paid this much for this product on Taobao. But if you join this WeChat group that I manage, uh, you can get even better deals. You, it, it would be cheaper for you uh, to get the same product. Of course, people do. What happens in that WeChat group with 500 people, these community managers, they go through and they advertise and they sell and they upsell and they continue introducing new products and things like that, basically taking the e-commerce platforms completely out of the equation. That's really what private domain traffic is about. It's having direct access to the consumer. Interestingly enough, I do think that this model only works in China in part because it's so manual labor intensive. You need lots of people. Uh, you need a huge workforce to be able to do this, to actually manage the WeChat groups, to talk with people, because these are not chatbots, right? These are not like AI NLP programs running in the background. Or something. These are real people interacting with these customers. But it's a really interesting solution to that problem of uh, user access and control of that. But again, I think it's something that we probably won't see, at least at scale in other markets. Some of the community group buying activity actually came upon through this private domain traffic. You have given a pretty good illustration on how e-commerce actually work with private domain traffic for the sellers. Can you give an example of a brand who has successfully leveraged on this approach to grow their business? 
Yeah. So a perfect diary, I think, is the uh, most often cited uh, use case. But we can see that it's happening throughout throughout the market. If they have the investment, if they have the capital to to hire, lots of people. We're seeing it. We're, we are seeing it more and more. Uh, but perfect diary is. Um, Again, the, one of the first to do it, one of the first to become uh, successful on it. Again, the workflow is pretty much the same. So you buy something, get a QR code, and then you get sucked into their WeChat ecosystem. For me, I have access to the free report. Many people out there would also do. I'm very curious and I've always asked this question every year when the report is published. So for this year, I'm going to ask it for the first time. What would be one key area of interest which is in the pro report? What are the key takeaways? Honestly, there's so much. If you look at the pro version, uh, the deep dive section that's not included in the free, I think is longer than the section that came before it. We're looking at 10 different areas from e-commerce to 5G to gaming, blockchain, fintech, online education, artificial intelligence, et cetera. But to be honest, it's actually quite difficult for me to really dive deep or at least just choose one. However, what I'm most interested in general is the retail side of what's been happening in the tech industry. So on the one hand, e-commerce, but then also, as you mentioned, community group buying, mostly because I think that retail is probably one of the best lenses to really look at the overall consumer economy and how the technology industry is shaping it, but on the other hand, also responding to, to how things are changing. One of the big things, of course, is this idea of the sinking markets. Sinking markets are, it's a Chinese term, and it basically means less dense um, areas of the country that up to now have been very much underserved by, by the technology industry and by much of the services and products that, uh, that we take for granted in larger cities. With community group buying, that's kind of, I think, one of the biggest examples of how tech companies are trying to address this market much, much better by providing convenience for some for areas that are remote, that do have less people and trying to find how to scale some of their services there. So on the one hand, how to provide the same services and products that we take for granted in larger cities, but then at the same time, also figuring out how to address consumers with higher price sensitivity. Because in these areas, the, the overall disposable income is much lower and the kinds of products that they're interested in are also different in some cases. See that in community group buying, how these companies are, are really going into these markets and trying to figure out how to serve what has been up to now, an underserved demographic. Given that 2021 is such a landmark year for the Chinese tech companies, what should we be expecting before the SAMP China Internet 2022 report? That's a really tough question. If you would ask me the same question uh, for last year's report, I probably would have gotten my answer completely wrong. So I'm a bit hesitant <laughs> to, to answer that question direct. But again, I think that some of the, the macro trends that we highlight in the report, um, I think are just going to become stronger and, and much more visible. So again, the changing shape of the market. So as I mentioned, the sinking markets, but then also the silver economy. So addressing elderly people and their needs, as well as the she economy, the rising affluence of women as well as a growing consciousness of feminism and women's rights and things like that. On the one hand, we have this market trends that are going on. At the same time, the, the room for growth is lowering rapidly, but I think consistent approach to the technology industry on the part of regulators. I remember back in 2015 or 2016 when the bike rental industry was really starting to take off. That was probably one of the best examples of the tech industry run amok because what happened was they basically externalized almost all the management cost of these bikes. These companies, they would put these bikes out, people would use them and then leave them 
wherever they wanted to. Residential communities had to pick up the bikes, had to use their own staff to pick up the bikes. Even city management workers had to take care of these bikes as well. What we're seeing really was very much on a local basis. Specific cities had specific rules on how to control this and say, hey, this is not responsible behavior. You're really messing up our city. It's impossible to walk on these streets because there's too many bikes, et cetera. I think what we're seeing now is very much just a control writ large and also being much more consistent on a national level. The wild growth that we've seen, some of the unethical business practices that we've seen are going to become harder and harder. Probably the end to the China's Gilded Age for the tech companies. So it feels like a very good place to end. In closing, I have two questions. The first one is any recommendations that you want to share with our audience that have inspired you? Of course, the China Internet Report. I didn't write any of it, but I was involved in the production. As someone who covers the technology industry, it's very comprehensive. I think it has a lot of great detail. And unlike a lot of other coverage of the Chinese tech space, it's very accurate. What happens sometimes is these types of reports, they tend to get some things wrong, whether it's a top level interpretation or whether it's some of the more granular specific stuff. But we put a lot of effort into uh, to making sure that it was accurate and complete. So, of course, the China Internet Report, which we'll, we'll provide the link to. But then most recently, I've been getting back into some of the science fiction that I read when I was a kid, along with some of the media that's been available recently. Of course, I have to say, when I read that in high school, it really changed the way I looked at the world. I saw the new movie. It was fantastic. I think it's almost impossible to really do that book full justice. It made me also reappreciate it as well. Now I'm going back to the old movie with the one that was uh, directed by David Lynch. I mean, like, huh. So when I first watched it, I was like, this is not good. But now I'm like, okay, I can appreciate it uh, a little bit more. On the other hand, Isaac Asimov with Foundation, that series of books are phenomenal. I've only watched one episode from the Apple TV series, but again, adaptations of things of these size and scope are very difficult. So far, what I've seen, I think it's it's okay. But really, for me, it just makes me want to read the books again. Agree with you on Dune 100%. And I think Foundation, we have to watch more the next few episodes to really make a conclusion on whether it's really stay true to the original series right. itself. So in conjunction with the South China Morning Post, they are also providing 30% off for the China Internet Report, the pro report for us on Analyze Asia with the promo code Analyze Asia CIR. I was going to spell it A-N-A-L-Y-S-E-A-S-I-A-C-I-R. You could only apply the promo code when you reach the checkout page. And this will only be valid for two months starting from today. We actually recorded on the end of September. So it will probably be the 1st of October onwards. And probably my audience will probably get this episode somewhere around 7 or 8 of October. So you should go and catch it. I probably would take a look at it as well. Final question. Where can my audience find you? Of course, scmp.com. You won't see my byline because I'm not really writing, but uh, scmp.com slash tech for all of the, the China tech coverage that we do. And then, of course, I am on uh, Twitter. So that's uh, knows nothing. If you want to get connected on uh, LinkedIn, my profile is Jay Artman. Thank you, John. It's really a pleasure to catch you for this conversation so quickly. Uh, I would definitely want to talk to you more about the China tech scene because there's so many stories that we want to cover as well. For all of you out there, you can definitely find Analyze Asia on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or even anywhere. Just Google us and 
you should be able to get our podcast to any of the listening devices you have. John, many thanks for coming on the show and I look forward to speak to you soon. Yeah, as always, Bernard, it's been great talking with you and uh, I always appreciate you know the opportunity to come and uh, share what I'm working on with you and your audience. 